Thanks you very much, Jack. And um, good evening, everybody. Uh, you will hopefully have been given an outline on the way in. Um, and at the top, it says, talk two, what is the church of how to love your church? And um, last week, we began by seeing the essential place of the church in God's purposes. And I put um, Matthew 16, 18 there again. I will build my church, says Jesus, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Um, but by way of recap, just see how well uh, we were listening last week. Can someone tell me what this is? Who wants to volunteer? What is this? Joe Connor. A church building. Anybody else? A rain shelter. Shania. Well done. Congratulations. Joe, you need to listen more carefully. Um, <laughs> rain shelter for the gathering of God's people. So if that's not a church, thanks, Lydia, uh, what is a church? Uh, well, as I said this morning, the aim of these talks is to get us crystal clear about the answer to that question uh, theologically, by which I just mean the way God sees it. And we're going to do that by following the story of the Bible in a, in a slightly unusual way. Um, through the theme of gathering and its opposite, scattering. Um, just on the topic of uh, just to l listening carefully, did anybody get asked this morning about the Loch Ness Monster? Um, no one? No one? Jack did? Okay. Well, I apologise because I hadn't talked about the Loch Ness Monster. Um, so if anybody had asked you, you would have, you would have uh, looked a bit blank because that's for, for next week. But I was getting confused with Startup where I had talked about it. So uh, apologies for that. So let's uh, follow this theme then of gathering and scattering. And if you'd like to open your Bibles at Genesis chapter 1, um, even the slowest Bible flipper, I think, can find Genesis chapter 1, the very first chapter of the Bible. And uh, when we're in these chapters, we always need to remember um, that they tell us more about why the world was made than about how the world was made. So um, the sort of the, the secular world, when they look at these chapters, they always want to talk about dinosaurs and Darwin and the number of days and that kind of thing, about how the world was made. But they're here to tell us about God's purpose. And pick it up in uh, verse 26 of chapter 1 where we see really the climax of the creation account. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. He created, in the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. God makes man in his image. Uh, what does that mean? Well, lots of ink has been spilt over that, um, and we're going to spend more time on that topic, of the image of God at NYC. But in the context, and context is always vital, isn't it, for understanding what Bible words mean, in the context, I think the image, being made in the image of God, means two things, at least two things. Firstly, rule, and secondly, relationship. And those two things go together. So first thing, it means to be made in the image of God is that man is to rule the world under God. Um, in the ancient Near East, kings used to set up little statues, little images of themselves in the territories that they had conquered as reminders to the people who lived in those places that even though they were a long way away, they were ruling that territory. And there's a sense in which God placing human beings on the earth is a reminder to the rest of the creation that God is the king. So in two ways to live, we 
we draw a crown, which we did last term, the crown signifying God's rule, and then the little crown we put on our heads, that signifies sin. But there is, a, there is a sense that actually we do wear a little crown on our heads because we are God's sort of rulers on the earth. And we are meant to rule as God's image bearers on his behalf. But the second thing it means to be made an image of God is to be able to relate. Now, we can't see this uh, exactly in Genesis um, chapter 1, 26 and 27, but earlier in the chapter and later in Genesis, you get hints that God himself is not just kind of a, a mono-being. He is a God in relationship. Uh, and as the Bible unfolds, we find that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is a trinity. And what that means is, even before he creates the world, he is a God enjoying eternal relationships, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. At the very heart of the universe is a God of relationship. And so when he creates humanity, he puts that ability to relate, that particular relational sort of heartbeat into the heart of man. And that's why, verse 27, we get the word so, and then God created man in his own image, and then the second half of the verse explains it. He made us male and female. We can relate to each other across the genders. And then chapter 2 develops both of those ideas. So in the image of God means rule. We rule God's world on his behalf and we relate. We relate to each other, to God and to the world. And then chapter 2, we see those two ideas come together. Pick it up in verse 8. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. And the Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. Man's rule under God is to tame the, the garden and tend it and spread it out to the rest of creation. But the man doesn't do it alone. Have a look at verse 18, where the woman is introduced as man's helper. So man and woman are to work together in this relationship to do God's work. And then you can see the kind of the, the image of God coming together. The rule, the relationship, they are to do it together. And therefore we get verse 24, the first marriage. And some uh, way, therefore, at the heart of the universe is God, who is the ruler, and he is in eternal relationship, and he has built into humanity the same capacity to rule and to relate. And so what this means is to be human is to be a little ruler. It's wrong to have a crown over your head. That's why we crossed it out in two ways to live, because that shows we've usurped God. But there's a sense in which it's right. We are rulers on God's earth. But we rule as male and female. We rule in relationship. Notice two more things about this state before we leave Genesis 1 and 2. Firstly, the garden, the world, is a place of immense blessing. We haven't got time to look at this in detail, but it's a place of plenty, and perfection, verse 9 of chapter 2. The trees are pleasing to the eye and good for food. Have you ever thought about the fact God creates this incredible abundance of life, more than is necessary? You know, he could have fed us on, I don't know, bread and sausages, but instead there are millions and millions of types, and that would suit some people, wouldn't it? But um, instead there are millions of types of food and fruit and flowers and all sorts of things. There, there is an unnecessary abundance it's a world of overflowing blessing and plenty. But the second thing about it, it's a place of relational harmony. The relationships in the garden are actually the key to this good world. 
God wanted a people to be with him for eternity. He wanted this place where men and women relate perfectly to each other, perfectly to him, and perfectly to the creation. And that is pictured for us. If you just flip over, uh, just glance over to chapter 3, verse 8, we get this kind of tantalizing little hint of what that's like, that the Lord God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. It's one of those things that is impossible to picture. How can you picture God walking in the garden, talking to the man or woman? But if you think about it in terms of relationships, this is the key to paradise, the Garden of Eden, that God relates perfectly with his creatures. Now, what that means, if we can just kind of uh, put it this way for a moment, is that the Garden of Eden is a place that is very, very different to our situation now. What is the big difference? It is that heaven and earth are joined together because God is the one who occupies heaven. We are the ones who occupy earth. But in chapter 3, verse 8, heaven and earth are together. Those two realities are together. There is no barrier. There's no distinction. Now, over you guys, you're doing Leviticus 16 tonight. Is that right? You're going to see something of how that barrier is kind of mended temporarily, symbolically, in the Holy of Holies. I don't want to steal the thunder of that Bible study. But that's it. Leviticus 16 is a kind of attempt to bring that situation together again. And you'll see how hard it, it is to do, how hard it is to pull off. Because we now live in a, in a world where we can't just walk into God's presence. We can't just walk and talk with God in the garden because heaven and earth have been separated. Now, just forward wind to the very end of the Bible, just very quickly. I'm not going to turn there, but just, in, it, just very quickly before we uh, leave this bit. The very end of the Bible gives us this same picture with bells on. So here we have a garden, we have two people, we have God. At the end of the Bible, in Genesis Revelation, uh, in Revelation 21-2, we have the same again, but it's massively expanded. We have a garden city. We have God. We have millions and millions of people. And that is called the, the church, the end of history. And so back in Genesis 1, what we see here are the seeds, the beginning of that end. If you want to, at some point, if you kind of, you know, you've got a wet Sunday afternoon and you don't know what to do and you, you know, you've done all your essay work or whatever, get out Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21, 22, and compare the two. It's a brilliant exercise. You'll see all sorts of contrast flowing between the two, the beginning and the end of the Bible. Because these two chapters show us God's purpose. He creates the people to be with him in eternity, and that is where history ends up. So what are we looking at then in Genesis 1 and 2? We are looking, of course, at the first church. It's a very small church, Adam and Eve <clears throat> and God, but it is a perfect church, perfectly harmonious church, and this church, this gathering of God's people contains the seeds, the architecture, the DNA of what God is taking history to right at the end, where God's people will rule with him in eternity in this perfected garden city. Because God actually wants a huge church. That's why he's created the world. Okay, so gathered in the beginning, there's the, the seeds of what God is doing, and it's a little church scattered after the, by the rebellion is the next heading because the perfect world we're given in Genesis 1 and 2 comes to an end in Genesis 3 
when the man and woman with their little crowns that are rightly, they're rightly wearing these little crowns, they then turn against God and usurp him. And so the big crown of God is, is kind of crossed out. That's, that's what's happening in Genesis 3. They rebel against God. They don't just break his rules. They try and create their own rules. They try and become God. And so they try and cast God off his throne. And the result of this, you'll see in Genesis 3.23. Have a look at it. Genesis 3.23. Notice the particular form of the judgment. The Lord God banished him from the garden to work the ground from which he had been taken. So if blessing is to be in the garden, judgment, the reversal, is to be cast out of the garden. And that begins a theme that continues right the way through the Bible, a theme of scattering as an inversion of gathering. So to be blessed is to be gathered into God's presence, to be judged, as Joe reminded us this morning, is to be, I think it was Joe, um, I've heard a few Bible talks today and they get merged in my head, but I think we did see that, is to be cast out of the garden and uh, to be cast out of God's presence. We get what we ask for. And so the curse of Genesis 3 is an undoing of God's creation purposes, the breaking up of that first church. The people of God are sent out into the world and are scattered. And then Genesis 4 to 11, we see that spiral of sin and depravity and the effects of the curse deepening, a story of increasing disharmony, murder, strife, homeless, wandering, blame, shame, disintegration, because heaven and earth are now separated. This is the world in which we live, the world of Genesis 4 to 11. God is in heaven, we're on earth, the barrier has come up, we cannot walk and talk with, garden, uh, with God in the garden. And so by the end of Genesis 11, we can be sure of one thing, that this cannot be repaired by human effort. This world that has been destroyed by sin cannot be regained. We cannot make our way back into the Garden of Eden, because there's a cherub holding a fiery sword, and God will not let us in. And that is the world in which we live now. That's what we've got to understand as we move out of Genesis 11. We live in that broken world, a world of disharmony, disunity. We are scattered away from God. Now, why is that all important? It's important for a number of reasons, but for our purposes tonight, it's important because knowing that, knowing the world in which we are, will help us appreciate what the local church is. Because here we see a little beginning of God remaking the world as he gathers his people to himself. But before that, he does it in Genesis 12 by a promise. So if you just flip over to Genesis 12. This is an important moment in the Bible. And it begins like this. The Lord said to Abraham, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I'll make you into a great nation, and I'll bless you. I'll make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I'll curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. The Old Testament really is divided into two halves. Genesis 1 to 11, and the rest. They're not equal halves, obviously, but thematic halves. Because Genesis 12 begins the long story in which God is reversing the effects of the fall and putting things right. 
It's a great rescue story that focuses on the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. And it's very important to see that the promises God gives to Abraham are not just good things. These are not just kind of God giving Abraham a few of his favorite things, but they are a restatement of the original creation purposes. So I wonder if you can see them there. Gives him a land. That's a, a kind of a restatement of the, the Garden of Eden. Gives him people, Abraham's descendants, and he promises blessing. Land, people, and blessing. That's what we saw in Genesis 1 and 2, and that's what God gives uh, Abraham through this promise. And therefore, as we follow the story of the Old Testament, it is following the story of this man's offspring as God rebuilds the broken world. And the Old Testament does it through the theme of scattering and gathering. For example, the Passover, when God rescues um, his people out of Egypt, we see the gathering of his people for the first time, the congregation of Israel, it's called, in Deuteronomy 4, gathered around the mountain, paid for, rescued by the blood of Christ. And in Deuteronomy 4, we read literally the day of the church, the day when people, God's people gathered in the wilderness. And so what makes Abraham's people special is that they are the church of God. They're gathered around the word of God. But of course, that's not where they end up in the Old Testament. If you follow the Old Testament story, you'll see that there is another great scattering. And if you could turn to Psalm 137, uh, you, we'll, we'll read about it there just very briefly. There's lots of places we could turn to, but this kind of puts it, uh, it sort of brings out the emotion of it, I suppose. Uh, Psalm 137, and if someone's got a page number, 627. So this is the people of God in Babylon. Now today, we like going on holiday. <clears throat> we like going abroad, don't we, to explore? Not if you're an ancient Israelite. Um, to be taken away from your home, to be sent to Babylon, was, they understood the greatest curse, the greatest tragedy that could befall them. And this is why they write this psalm. Psalm 137, by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. Jerusalem, our home. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. You can see here the, the sort of the desperation of a people who have not just been physically uh, removed from their land, but spiritually taken away from God, uh, from God's presence in Jerusalem. And they realize that they are back under the curse, scattered outside the garden. Now, what I want to say at this point is that really, thematically, that is where the Old Testament ends. Yes, I know there is a return from exile, and you can read about that in uh, the prophets like Haggai and Malachi and Ezra and Nehemiah, where the people do physically return to the land and they have a little kind of attempt to rebuild things, but spiritually, they are still in exile when the New Testament opens. Well, that brings us then to point four, and 
the church gathered around Christ because Jesus is the one who ends the exile. As we open the pages of the New Testament, Jesus breaks the 400-year silence and look at the way he does it. He does, we're going to see three things that are, that are related, not three completely different things, but three things that are related. How does Jesus regather God's people? And this is where this topic gets really exciting. Firstly, Jesus gathers God's people by preaching. He preaches the word to them. Look at what Jesus first says in Mark's gospel. You should know this well by now if you've been here this term. He says, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near, repent and believe the good news. So there is the announcement that the kingdom, the rule of God, that was first seen in Genesis 1 and 2, has been or is being renewed. If you think about it in the light of what we've seen, here is the announcement that that barrier between heaven and earth is now being fixed again, the kingdom. You can now come into God's presence. You can come in safely. And how do you do it? You repent, you turn and believe the good news. And then... Perhaps even more surprisingly, Jesus then involves other people in his mission to gather God's people. Verse 16, he sees two brothers fishing, Simon and Andrew. And verse 17, he says, come follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And so Jesus' message is come back into the kingdom. I am announcing paradise regained, Eden restored, and you can be involved in bringing people back in. But how's he going to do it? Well, secondly... Jesus gathers his church by dying. Over the page, you should see John 10. And he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So Jesus is predicting there the effect that his death on the cross is going to have to gather in the flock of God. Or John 12, 32, when I'm lifted up from the earth, I'll draw all men to myself. Or, and it's not on the sheet, Ephesians 2, 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. So what is going to unlock the door and open the Garden of Eden again? What is going to reunite heaven and earth again so that we can get into God's kingdom and live under God's rule? It is Jesus' death on the cross. He's going to take the punishment we deserved. And so that's why he can say in John 12, as he is lifted up on the cross, it is the greatest act of gathering. That is how he draws people in. The scattered people of God can only be drawn together because Jesus dies on the cross. Because on the cross, Ephesians 2, the barriers have been removed. The barrier of sin, which put a it put, it, that we put in the way between us and God has been removed. But how does he do it now? Well, thirdly, he gathers his church through his spirit-filled disciples. Um, just turn to Acts 2. And if you're at CU on Tuesday night, you heard Joe expound this excellently, no doubt. But have a quick look at it uh, now. Acts chapter 1. Page number, anybody? 1092, thank you. And pick it up in verse 6, Acts 1, verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? 
He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Notice their question in verse 6. Are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Are you going to bring about the, the, the paradise that was lost, the Garden of Eden, again? And notice his answer. His answer is, he gives them two things. He gives them the Holy Spirit, and he gives them time. They are going to get, do the gathering through their spirit-empowered witness. They're going to be the people who preach the gospel and bring people in. And he's going to give them time to do it before he comes again. And the crucial thing about that is that that time is the world in which we live now. That window is still open. Jesus, verse 11, is going to come back one day. But he hasn't come back. We are still involved in the gathering. The spirit is still active. The mission is ongoing. The gospel must be preached to the ends of the earth. And God's people gathered in until the very last one comes in. And every person that God has chosen from before the creation of the world, from every tribe and nation and tongue, will finally be gathered round him on his throne, singing his praises, thanks to his death and resurrection. And at that point, he will return. Well, let's uh, conclude with a few implications. We've traveled a long way, very quickly, and um, hopefully we've seen three things, and this is just to kind of summarize what we've seen from a slightly different perspective. Firstly, we've seen God's aim. The God's aim from eternity has been to gather a people to himself. This is what God is doing. He has pursued that aim, hasn't he, by creating the world, by creating men and women in his image, by sending Jesus, by sending the Spirit, by giving us this time in which we live, the time of the mission. Now, I don't know if that kind of changes the way you think about the world. But I think it tells us, doesn't it, that actually the doctrine of the church, the idea of the church, is bigger than creation. I don't know if that changes things for you. If you've always maybe thought the church is a kind of a, a subset of creation. But God had in his mind a people, and then he created the world so that he could have this people at the end of time. He wants a bride for his son. And the doctrine of creation, the world in which we live, uh, for all its incredible glory, is a subset of that doctrine. That's a, a remarkable thing, isn't it? And what this means is, as I said this morning, is that church is actually a worldview for the Christian. It's not just one thing to put in your sort of theological textbook. It's actually a pair of lenses to wear as you look out at life. So whatever else you do in life, whatever else your mission in life is, your mission in life is to join Jesus and to be fishers of men. This is what he's doing. And it's a totally different mindset, isn't it, therefore, to the common one, which is I come to church to serve my purposes. Yeah, I'm a Christian, so of course I'm going to come to church as and when it suits me because of the things I need. Actually, we reverse that and say, no, this is what God is doing. And therefore, what a privilege it is to be involved in. Secondly, we've noticed God's method. Where did we see that? Well, we saw it in Genesis 12. 
And we saw it in Mark chapter 1. See, how? How did God do it? Well, did you notice the word in both of those passages? Genesis 12, God gave Abraham a promise. Abraham believed the promise. He took God at his word. And he's in right relationship with God. He's gathered into the people. Mark chapter 1, Jesus preaches a word. He sends his disciples out to preach the word. And that is how the church forms. In other words, God creates the physical world with a word, doesn't he, in Genesis 1, and he is creating the church with that same word. And that is tremendously significant as well. How does God form the church? Not through, and I know Joe knows this perfectly well, he was just testing me out, but how does God form the church? Not through bricks and mortar, he forms the church through the preaching of the word. The church is the gathering of God's people who have responded in faith to the word. And lots of implications flow from this. So, for example, imagine that you were given the task of planting a church, starting a church. I think I said this to another group recently. You know, you, you, you get packed off in the bus to Lithuania or Moldova or somewhere like that, and you're going to start a church. What would you do? Well, you might think, well, we need a building. We need a projector thing, a guitar, a guitarist, a microphone, a load of Bibles. Actually, what you need is the Word of God. You need to start preaching the Word. When we came here 17 years ago, there were 12 people in this church. I don't know if you know that. Not in this church building, in this church called Mormons. There were 12 people. The church was dying It'd been going since 1930, but it, it was dying and dying and dying, and they decided to close. How do, you, how do you deal with a situation like that? How do you get the growth happening? Well, you could sit down with a whiteboard and have a clever strategy and think about all sorts of clever things and branding and logos and rename and raise lots of money and all, all those kind of things. But actually what you need to do is open the Bible and let the Word do its work and teach people and train people and train up those disciple-making disciples who will be fishers of men. That's how you grow the church. And therefore, how are you going to lead a church if you're called to be a church leader? You've got to roll up your sleeves and get on with the hard labor of teaching God's word and, as we heard this morning, refuting error, having that fight. How are you going to support a church? Well, there's all sorts of ways you can support a church. You can give financially, you can mop the floors, you can turn up, you can do all sorts of things. But ultimately, being a good listener, being someone who is able to listen, someone who is absorbing God's word, so you're growing in faith and you can grow other people. God's aim. The Bible is the engine of the church. Without the word of God, we are still scattered. But when the word of God is taught faithfully, truly, and error refuted, God is gathering, gathering his people. And then thirdly, therefore, God's accomplishment. God's accomplishment. I want us just to end by thinking how amazing, how extraordinary it is that there are a group of people gathered in this rain shelter every Sunday. It's an extraordinary thing. What draws us together? What keeps us together? Well, we might enjoy hanging out together, we may, uh, certainly when I saw all the cakes at Titus 2, I thought, well, that's certainly a draw. I would come for that. Amazing. Didn't know women could eat so many cakes. Did they leave some? I think there's a few left. 
Um, but that's not the thing that's going to draw us together. What is drawing us together is Christ, isn't it? We're gathered to him. And that is why as you um, go on in church life uh, and you get to know people of different sort of backgrounds and different ages, you see this extraordinary thing, which is a kind of a unity and diversity, which I think you don't see anywhere else genuinely uh, on the face of, of the planet. But you do see it here in an ordinary local church. And as I said this morning, this is brilliant and encouraging because the secular narrative is always telling us Christianity has failed. You know, it's declining in this country. There are fewer people becoming Christians, fewer people going to church. We're in a secular world. But actually, the, you look at the local church and you see, actually, no, it's working. God's plan is working. His word is working. Jesus is doing what he said he's going to do, which is to build his church. And therefore, as Jack has already reminded us, the implication of this is that if this is what God is doing, then roll up your sleeves and you get doing it too. We should not for a moment hesitate to throw ourselves into this because this is the thing that lasts. Nothing else will last but uh, the church, the people that God is gathering into his eternity. It's going to go on and on and on forever. And so roll up your sleeves and get stuck in. Shall I pray? Are you going to pray, Jack, and sing? I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that Jesus' promise to build his church uh, comes in the context of that whole Bible story of your promises your faithfulness to Abraham, your faithfulness to Israel, uh, your faithfulness to your own purposes and your own glory. Father, thank you for reminding us that uh, Jesus is building his church in the face of the gates of Hades, that there is opposition, uh, that there is a cost to be borne. We thank you that that cost was borne most of all by him on the cross. We thank you for reminding us today that that cross is also to be borne by us as we fight the good fight, as we stand up for the truth. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to see things your way, that we will not be discouraged by the world telling us that your cause is failing, uh, that we will be massively encouraged as we see uh, what you are doing in churches all over the world as you gather your people to the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that we might be involved that we might give ourselves to his mission for his glory. And we pray this for his sake. Amen.